I am still trying to get answers from you and from your organization after more than two years. And you keep going, well, Senator. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in uh, uh, Red Bluff and Red in California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Don't make fun of me, Desi. I'm just <laughs> getting started. Long week. Uh, also up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Yes, it's already an exhausting week, but we're going <laughs> to make it through, Desi Doyen. Oh, yes. <clears throat> With your help. <laughs> Don't make it harder on me. Uh, let's try to uh, nip this one, however, right off, right in the bud, right off the bat, please. This from AP's fact check today. This, there, there's a claim that began circulating widely, apparently, in the far-right fever swamps of social media, uh, media sites like Gab and Telegram and, yes, even Facebook and Twitter on Tuesday night. As results were coming in from the GOP's wildly failed California recall election, in which Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom reportedly won by a landslide, which as of now, uh, with about three quarters of the vote tallied in California, he appears to have won by a landslide, 64 percent to 36 percent so as his, of now. So his landslide got even landslidier. Yes, it did. And it's even a larger percentage uh, of the vote than Joe Biden won over Donald Trump in uh, that crushing defeat last year for Trump out here in the Golden State and even several points higher than Gavin Newsom received in his original first term victory over Republicans back in 2018. So good job, Republicans. Thank you for spending almost $300 million of our uh, taxpayer money for your Nonsense. Very conservative of you. Anyway, the claim that was uh, circulating as of a Tuesday night as the results were coming in 
has videotape to support it. It was taken by a man who was watching CNN at the time, and it appears to show more than 350,000 votes to recall Newsom suddenly disappearing in CNN's live election night coverage feed. At first, as AP notes, the ticker uh, at the bottom of the screen uh, on on CNN displayed about four and a half million no votes. That was against the recall of Newsom and 2.2 million yes votes in favor of removing the governor. Moments later, however, the ticker's tally of yes votes dropped from about 2.2 million down to 1.9 million. The numbers went in reverse. Where did they go, says the man in the background of the video. Uh, 400,000 votes just disappeared, he can be heard saying. Republican commentators, of course, on Facebook and Twitter questioned why 351,000 votes were, quote, deleted. (laughs) And they called the clip proof of fraud and claimed that it don't laugh. It could be Desi Doyen. You don't know. Uh, claim that it showed Newsom uh, actually, yes, I do. Only kept his position because of uh, machine quote glitches, as they describe them. Okay, so uh, we have been down this road many times in the past, which may be why Desi Doyen is already <laughs> laughing. Uh, but we can certainly speak with some experience here. This is not proof of fraud, at least not by itself, and at least not when it comes from a TV cable news live ticker coverage of incoming vote totals on election night. AP offers this explanation, and it is uh, one that in my nearly 20 years now of covering elections like this is entirely plausible and, in fact, almost certainly the correct explanation for what actually happened on CNN. Remember, this is not an official county elections uh, results site or even a secretary of state's website. This was CNN on their live ticker. Uh, AP uh, assesses that Edison Research, the polling firm that provides election data to CNN, uh, said that a data reporting error by one of its staffers caused false vote totals to briefly appear on a CNN uh, live broadcast. The error was fixed within two minutes. In reality, they write, the vote changes had a simple explanation, a brief reporting error by an Edison research staffer at a county office in Santa Clara, California. The changing numbers in the viral clip are a result of the error being fixed, according to Rob Farbman, executive vice president of Edison Research. In an email, Farbman explains, while the no vote was entered correctly at 1119 Eastern Time, the yes vote that appeared for two minutes on CNN was actually the total vote of the combined ballots for yes and no in Santa Clara. So it's something that can be checked. Uh, This error, he said, was entered at 11.19 p.m. Eastern Time, and it was corrected two minutes later at 11.21 p.m. Eastern Time when we deleted the total vote uh, that was in for yes and entered the correct yes vote in its place. He said, we enter thousands of points of data, and a mistake like this can be made. The error apparently was not limited to CNN. It affected several other networks that also subscribe to Edison Research's uh, number. So in theory, 
it can be checked against all of that. And he does offer quite a few specifics to, to check it against. People do not understand that those numbers coming in to your TV set on election night do not come straight from the tabulating computers that are counting votes. They often do not even come in from the county or the state websites, which are tracking those numbers, but rather they come from uh, private sources who are often entering these totals in manually, by hand, which, of course, can result in all sorts of typos and such, which appears to be the case here. Not that that's going to stop a determined uh, right-wing conspiracy theorist from believing that the election in California, where Democrats outnumber Republicans by nearly two to one, was somehow gamed to result in the Democratic governor winning by a nearly two to one margin. But uh, let's try to just knock this nonsense down before it gets out of control. This is something that is perfectly reasonable, perfectly explainable, perfectly understandable. And that we have seen uh, happen many, many times over the years. Yes, it is the error that launched a thousand conspiracy yes, theories. Yes. And uh, it wouldn't, even if it had been some kind of nefarious plot, it still would not have been enough to have uh, overcome the vast the margin. millions of votes margin. Right. Yeah, because we're talking about a couple hundred thousand votes. Still, I'm glad that people are watching. I'm glad that people yeah. are trying to uh, oversee this stuff. I have discussed for years how it can, in fact, be helpful to monitor various results websites on election night, particularly actual results websites at places like counties and secretary of state's offices. I've seen um, over the years some numbers at those sites that have been impossible to explain with votes seemingly uh, disappearing uh, and rolling backwards and then later checking into them at the county and or the state level with the counties and the states being unable to explain what actually happened, unable to get, offer an explanation for why numbers roll backwards. Uh, we have you can go to bradblog.com and look up uh, impossible numbers in uh, I think it's Monroe County, Arkansas, as I believe some years ago. But this does not seem to be that this uh, this explanation actually makes complete sense. And it underscores again that these are not results from tabulators when you see them on CNN, but they're from human beings typing numbers uh, into a database, into a TV station live results feed. And that is totally different from numbers coming in from the county. But it is still worth investigating, as AP did here. And I believe that the explanation they offered makes sense. We'll see, however, if there is still anybody left on the right who actually has any kind of relationship with, <laughs> you know, making sense. <clears throat> they did. Uh, they received such a drubbing on Tuesday that one would... Uh, think they wouldn't charge fraud here, but, you know, never underestimate the right wing willingness to toss reality out of the window these days entirely. Got it. All right. We'll see how things go from here. <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, in completely unrelated news today, <clears throat> you're welcome. You, uh, you likely heard on Wednesday, uh, because this got a lot of coverage by the corporate media, about the testimony in the U.S. Senate's Judiciary Committee from a number of U.S. Olympic gymnasts, uh, including Simone Biles, 
about how the FBI appeared to ignore years of complaints about sexual abuse of hundreds of young girls by the team physician Larry Nasser, uh, who is finally, after decades of reported abuse, uh, serving time in jail now, I believe, in, on charges of sexual abuse and pedophilia and so forth. Basically, the gymnasts were testifying at this committee hearing as to how their complaints went long uninvestigated or ignored by the FBI or brushed under the rug, despite what we now know to be very real instances of sexual abuse of hundreds of, of team members over many, many years. Now, I'm not going to talk about that today because it's received plenty of coverage elsewhere in the corporate media, etc. But receiving much less coverage was something... Uh, raised by Rhode Island's Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse after the uh, questioning uh, on the Nasser matter, uh, some questions that he, he gave to FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was there to testify on, on the FBI's behalf regarding their bungled years-long failure to do a proper investigation into the sexual assault allegations against Nasser. Uh, despite the hundreds of complaints from the young girls that were all apparently swept under the rug for some time. So Christopher Wray, as you'll recall, was appointed by Donald Trump as FBI director after Trump had infamously fired James Comey because Comey was investigating the Trump campaign's involvement with Russia, kicking off the Mueller investigation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, during his questioning of Wray later in the day, Senator Whitehouse raised the issue of whether the Nasser investigation wasn't the only high-profile FBI investigation into sexual assault and abuse allegations of young girls that the agency might have bungled and, yes, swept under the rug. Questioning the legitimacy of the FBI's 2018 so-called background check into now U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who, you'll recall, also had serious allegations of sexual assault levied against him at the time. Uh, Director Ray, it strikes me very strongly as we sit here today and as we heard the powerful testimony earlier this morning that the last time a woman came forward in this committee to testify to her allegations of sexual assault in her childhood. The witness was Christine Blasey Ford. It appeared to me then, and it appears to me now, that her testimony was swept under the rug in a confirmation stampede. It is very possible that the FBI investigation of her allegations was just as flawed, just as constrained, just as inappropriate as the investigation in this case. We don't know because we don't have answers. I am still trying to get answers from you 
and from your organization, along with Senator Coons and others, after more than two years, our first letter requesting information was in August 1st of 2019. Our follow-up, we got a response to yesterday, two months afterwards. Not coincidentally, I suspect, on the eve of your appearance today. Somebody said, oh, we better get something up there because we haven't answered this question. In that letter dated yesterday, the assistant director said that the FBI is working with the department to identify and make available certain relevant documents. So the answer wasn't even an answer. It was an answer that at some date in the future we might actually get an answer. Today, now, can you give me that date when these certain relevant documents will be provided to us? So uh, I am aware uh, both of your uh, prior letter, but also of the letter uh, that you most recently sent that I saw on Monday. Uh, and we'll get the, to that in a minute. Let's start with the one I right. Asked you. So uh, the documents that, as I understand, are referenced in the letter that we sent yesterday, uh, we are working with the department, and we expect to get you those within the next two weeks. Very well. Um, I'll be interested to see what deliberative executive branch information is included as it strikes me that our request doesn't get into deliberative process at all. But we'll see how that goes. I just hope that that's not being put up as yet another stall, delay, interference, obstruction to us getting the answers and the documents that we need. Good for Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on Wednesday at the uh, Judiciary Committee hearing with uh, with FBI Director Christopher Wray there. So Whitehouse noted that he repeatedly requested more information about the FBI's so-called investigation into Christine Blasey Ford's allegations that she had been sexually assaulted by Justice uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Long, of course, before he was a justice back in high school, but uh, that White House had been ignored for two years before finally receiving a response just the day before the hearing, as you heard, with a promise for more documents in the coming weeks and his hope that it wouldn't be all withheld or redacted as part of the so-called deliberative process with the Trump administration White House, who outrageously appears to have uh, not only controlled the FBI probe, but actually put strict limits on it. As Daily Coast staffer Aisha uh, Kamar notes, uh, during the testimony against Nasser, Ray said that he felt, quote, heartsick and furious once he learned of the agency's failures toward pursuing justice. However, he didn't acknowledge the fault that he or the agency as a whole had in the botched investigation. Uh, into the abuse against the uh, gymnast and blamed individuals who, quote, betrayed the core duty that they have of protecting people, but that he did vow to, quote, make damn sure that everybody at the FBI remembers what happened here in heartbreaking detail. 
Well, will he make that same vow about whatever happened here to Christine Blasey Ford? Other lawmakers also questioned Ray over the Bureau's handling of the Kavanaugh probe, including the claim that the FBI lacked the authority to conduct a deeper background investigation into the then lifetime U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Kavanaugh was confirmed, as you may recall, uh, by a party line vote of 50 to 48 made possible by the Republicans earlier reform of the Senate filibuster, nuking the rule that for decades had required Supreme Court nominees to receive at least 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. The Republicans had no problem doing away with that for a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. Uh, Kavanaugh's lifetime appointment, along with Neil Gorsuch's before him and Amy Coney Barrett's after him, of course, helped the Republicans to secure their stolen, packed and, yes, corrupted majority on the uh, on the high court. Uh, and all of that was made possible with the help of the FBI under the direction of Donald Trump's appointee, Christopher Wray. According to The Guardian's coverage of the uh, new scrutiny now of the Kavanaugh investigation being faced by Ray, the Bureau claimed at the time that a 2010 Memorandum of Understanding, a, uh, an MOU as they called it, actually prevented it somehow from performing a deeper investigation into allegations of misconduct by Kavanaugh. According to a letter to Senators Whitehouse and Coons at the time, the FBI said that it did not have the authority under the MOU to, quote, unilaterally conduct further investigative activities absent instructions from the requesting entity. The requesting entity at the time was apparently Donald Trump's White House. The FBI claimed uh, special instructions were needed from then-President Trump under the 2010 guidelines on how such investigations could be conducted, which seems kind of strange because if this was a crime that they were investigating, it seems like the FBI is allowed to investigate any damn crime they want. But despite this, uh, White House is uh, standing his ground here. He even told The Guardian that he would not stop asking questions until the director answers them. Senator Whitehouse told The uh, Guardian in its uh, years late response to our questions, the FBI leaned hard on the notion that this MOU limited its authority to be the FBI and to investigate wrongdoing. Now that we have the MOU... I guess now that they've seen it, it's even harder to understand the Bureau's excuses for ignoring credible information that it received. Director Ray, he says, ought to be ready to answer my questions about this episode. I won't stop asking until he does, says the senator. White House made a promise to Christine Blasey Ford, apparently, in 2018, following Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation after she'd offered specific and credible testimony that I hope you all remember in front of the Judiciary Committee that she had been assaulted by Kavanaugh when she was in high school. White House made a commitment to pursue the thorough investigation of her sexual assault allegations. He said he would, quote, uh, he would do, quote, whatever's in my power to make sure your claims get a full and proper investigation. White House was suspicious at the time that the FBI tip line that was set up for information about Kavanaugh's background 
was, quote, not for real. And he says that uh, after issues were found in the uh, Nasser investigation, his suspicions only grew stronger. He said he he told uh, the Boston Globe in July that this wasn't a tip line. This was a tip dump. It was a garbage shoot from the tip line to the White House counsel's office where they had no interest in conducting an investigation. He went on to tell the Globe, quote, for those of us in the Senate, it raises questions about the trustworthiness of FBI background investigations for nominees. If this is going to turn into a situation where the FBI can tank a background investigation by sending derogatory information to the White House and Congress never finds out, that is a poor setup for Senate trust. Senator Whitehouse added that the issue is still relevant three years after Kavanaugh's confirmation because that's how long it took for the FBI to even respond to his questions at all. He said, quote, it's not my fault. It's their fault. This should have come out immediately. Now, this is a guy, Senator Whitehouse, when he says he will not stop asking questions until he gets answers. After vowing to Blasey Ford that he would pursue a thorough investigation of her allegations, and he's now still trying to do so three years later, you know, from a lot of senators who who might promise to look into that, you might think they were just giving giving it lip service. But this comes from Senator Whitehouse, of all people. I believe that is a vow that you and Christopher Ray and Christine Ford uh, Blasey Ford and, yes, the corrupt, disgraced Brett Kavanaugh can take to the bank. <laughs> Senator Whitehouse spent, what was it, Desi, uh, 10 years coming to the floor uh, of the Senate? Yes. <laughs> what, like once a week for, I think, 10 years to discuss climate change? Yes, yes. So, it was. Uh, he, he did a weekly Senate address where he talked about climate change. He talked. Call, it was called Time to Wake Up, and he only just recently completed it. So, yeah, there's like 200-something uh, addresses that he gave. Yeah. He, he does not give up. He does not give he up. He does not stop. And this is a guy who says, I will not stop. I will stay on this. Uh, so, you know, he, he, Senator Whitehouse is not the senator you want to have uh, vowed to follow something to the gates of hell because he actually will he do will, it. Probably, yeah. Even as we vow to do everything that we can to push for and to highlight accountability for the unspeakably corrupt Trump administration and the Republican Party over the past four or five or God knows how many years at this point. Anyway, I just wanted to take the time to point that out uh, because, no, we have not forgotten about this Brett Kavanaugh. And I'm glad that uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, more importantly, is still on the case. And for that, we are very grateful. Quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The beat goes on. Certainly does. Beat goes on. There'll be a day when we don't have to keep reporting on COVID stories, right? 
Someday? I hope so. Someday? How many years from now? Anyway, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh, comedian uh, Christopher Titus on uh, Twitter this week uh, tweeted, Breaking! Vaccinated left-wing radio host who promoted vaccines is fine. <laughs> uh, incidentally, one of the commenters in response to that tweet said, uh, I don't know of a single left-wing radio host, do you? Mm. Another commenter who happens to follow me, known as Elderta, or Elder Ta, uh, <laughs> responded to that uh, with, uh, quote, Randy Rhodes, the Brad blog. Nice. Thank you very much, Elder Ta. Uh, which that's why I saw Titus's tweet in the first place, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah. Given that we've had, uh, uh, and I've lost count, it's either five or six right-wing anti-vaxxer radio hosts who have died over the past six weeks. COVID. Imagine that. I only wish uh, the rest of this segment was as ironically amusing as that tweet. Idaho hospitals are now so overwhelmed with the surge in coronavirus cases that doctors and nurses have to contact dozens of regional hospitals across the West in hopes of finding places to transfer individual critical patients. We covered this story about hospitals in northern Idaho receiving permission from the state health department to move to so-called critical care standards. Uh, I think it was last week. That's a nice way of, of to say health care rationing or more accurately, death panels where doctors are forced to give ICU beds and critical care to patients who they believe they can save while offering uh, nothing more than comfort care to those less likely to make it. Yes, these are the very death panels that right-wingers used to be furious about when they were pretending that or when they were misinformed that such death panels were written into the Obamacare legislation some years ago. And that was, of course, before COVID came around. And now apparently they're just fine with death panels, apparently. Well, last week, uh, that was going on in the northern part of Idaho. Now the situation is that bad, apparently, for the entire state. As NBC News reports today, the situation has grown so dire that the Idaho Department of Health and Wellness announced Thursday that the entire state is in a hospital resource crisis, permitting medical facilities to, yes, ration health care and triage patients. Kootenai Health, a hospital in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, has already converted a conference room into an overflow COVID unit, started uh, paying traveling nurses $250 an hour, and brought in a military medical unit. The hospital received permission from the state to begin rationing care last week. That's all in response to the COVID surge that in recent weeks has taken over much of Idaho, a state with one of the nation's lowest vaccination rates. Doctors are being forced to call 30 or more hospitals across multiple states to find a bed for a single patient in hospitals with which they have little to no relationship. Some doctors in Idaho have called as far south as Texas mm. and as far east as Georgia. Dr. David Pate, a member of Idaho's Coronavirus Task Force and the former president and CEO of St. Luke's Health System in Boise, said you're taking seven to eight hours to call a bunch of hospitals to see if one will take your patient 
who might face a time-sensitive emergency. Seven to eight hours might mean that patient will not survive, he said. When Idaho declared that it would ration uh, care in its northern region last week, the state's health and welfare director, Dave Jeppesen, called it a last resort. Earlier this week, he said crisis standards of care were, quote, imminent for hospitals in the rest of the state, given that Idaho continues to set new records for hospitalizations and patients in the intensive care unit and on ventilators due to COVID. He said at a briefing this week, the numbers are increasing at an alarming rate and we do not see a peak in sight. They don't even know when this is when this is going to peak. In his announcement on Thursday, Jepson pleaded with Idaho residents, stating the best way to end crisis standards of care is for more people to get vaccinated. The situation is dire, he said. We don't have enough resources to adequately treat the patients in our hospitals, whether you are there for COVID or a heart attack or because of a car accident. Of course, Idaho is hardly alone in pursuing this type of care, unfortunately. The Billings Clinic, a 300-bed hospital in Montana, is now considering adopting crisis standards of care as its ICU hits 150% capacity. Alaska's largest hospital, Providence Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage, said on Tuesday that based on its numbers of patients, they had been forced within our hospital to implement, yes, crisis Standards of care up in Alaska. Meanwhile, hospitals in Wyoming that are not normally equipped with pediatric beds, they are now struggling to address a wave of pediatric illnesses. Eric Boley, the president of the state's hospital association, said that they typically depend on neighboring states to take critical, uh, critically ill kids. But they can't do that anymore because their neighboring states, they're all filled up. With few signs that it will let up anytime soon, the region's healthcare systems could be stretched to their breaking point, reports NBC in a region of the country that remains highly skeptical of COVID vaccines and mandates. Now, it sounds to me, frankly, like the system is already broken. I don't know what they mean by stretched to their breaking point. If people cannot get care at a hospital and are, you know, left to fend for themselves and die exactly what is the definition of breaking point at this point uh, uh pate dr pate of the idaho's uh, uh coronavirus task force said it doesn't matter what you believe about covid right now what matters is that our health care system is at capacity he said i'm just asking people work with us for a month six weeks humor us be careful don't get in a large crowd, wear a mask, and please do consider getting vaccinated, he said. Just amazing. You, now, you may have already heard this uh, next story earlier this week uh, of a man. Um, you know, you, you can be careful to stay out of large crowds and to wear masks and to get vaccinated and uh, even wear a seatbelt and to try to drive carefully so you don't get into a car accident. But it's kind of hard to avoid a heart attack 
Earlier this week, uh, this story received quite a, a, a bit of attention. The family of an Alabama man who died of heart issues in Mississippi is asking people to get vaccinated for COVID after 43 hospitals across three different states were unable to accept him because uh, of full cardiac ICUs. Ray Martin Demonia died last week in Meridian, Mississippi. But he's an Alabama man. He was three days shy of his 74th birthday, and he's a well-known native in Coleman, Alabama, where he had his heart attack, according to his family. Demonia, who had been fully vaccinated against COVID, suffered from a cardiac event, and emergency staff at Coleman Regional Medical Center in Alabama had to bring him to the nearest available bed, which was nearly 200 miles away at a Mississippi hospital. In his obituary, Demonia's family urged people to get vaccinated against COVID. Uh, the obituary reads, quote, in honor of Ray, please get vaccinated if you have not in an effort to free up resources for non-COVID related emergencies. Ray would not want any other family to go through what his did. Um, as of, uh, well, I guess this was Thursday of last week, there are uh, there were 60 more ICU patients in Alabama than there were beds, and 51% of those patients had tested positive for COVID. I suspect those numbers are no better this week. Uh, the story uh, generated a lot of attention uh, because uh, of the family uh, talking about uh, you know, begging people to get vaccinated in uh, Demonia's obituary. But as uh, Josh Marshall pointed out at the time, there was one detail about this story or at least arguably tied to the story that um, the Washington Post's coverage at least did not mention. Coleman, Alabama, where Demonia's uh, hometown hospital was, that was the site of what the Alabama state GOP billed as the largest political rally in Alabama history. That just a couple of days before Demonia went to the hospital. The state GOP claimed 50,000 turned out for this rally in Coleman, uh, held by, yes, Donald Trump. And few, if any, in the crowd there seemed to be masked. The August 21 rally in Coleman was actually the one where Trump made that uh, low-energy pitch for vaccinations. Remember that? He got booed oh, by yeah. the crowd. He sort of backed away from it. In response to getting booed, uh, Demonia was uh, admitted himself to the Coleman Regional Medical Center just two days later on August 23rd. He died at the hospital in Mississippi on September 1st. Now, as uh, Marshall notes, given the short gap in time between the rally and the time that Demonia had his heart attack, um, clearly Trump's visit did not cause the surge in hospitalizations that forced Demonia's doctor to evacuate him to the to Mississippi. That surge was already underway. Correct. Uh, but as Josh notes, uh, there's no doubt that the climate of covid denial and lo-fi anti-vaccine politics that Trump has brought in his wake certainly contributed mightily to it. Alabama is the fourth least vaccinated state in the country. 
And Trump's visit probably did not do any favors for Alabama hospitals in the uh, subsequent three weeks. Uh, Of course, it's not just uh, Republican wingnut states with death wishes like Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and Alabama and Mississippi uh, and, of course, Florida and Texas and Georgia. Um, There are problems in blue states as well. Um, But those are the ones with the governors who are, you know, putting up the most resistance to Joe Biden's common sense and, and frankly, very gentle mandates that federal workers and contractors must be vaccinated and that employees at businesses with 100 or more workers must also be vaccinated or face regular testing so they can test out of it. Uh, In a speech at the White House on Thursday about his economic proposals, Joe Biden criticized Republican governors for their opposition to vaccine mandates, calling calling it the worst kind of politics. The data shows that the overwhelming majority of Americans agree with my proposal. That's no surprise, given that 76 percent of American adults have already gotten at least one shot. But but we're facing a lot of pushback especially from some of the Republican governors. The governors of Florida and Texas are doing everything they can to undermine the life-saving requirements that I proposed. And some of the same governors attacking me are in states with the strictest vaccine mandates for children attending school in the entire country. For example, in Mississippi, children are required to be vaccinated against measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, hepatitis B, polio, tetanus, and more. These are state requirements. But in the midst of a pandemic that has already taken over 660,000 lives, I propose requirement for COVID vaccines. And the governor of that state calls it, quote, a tyrannical type move, a tyrannical type move. This is the worst kind of politics because it's putting the lives of citizens of their states, especially children at risk. And I refuse to give into it. These policies are what the science tells us we need to do. They're going to save lives. They'll protect our economic recovery as well and allow the economy to continue to grow. Good for him. Joe Biden today at the White House refusing to back down. Good for him. As I said, it's it's not just... Uh, you know, the, the 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 red states like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Alabama, et cetera, that are having that are now seeing these surges. But those are the ones with the governors who are fighting, doing something about it. But all of it is affecting people in so-called blue states where the voluntarily unvaccinated are also helping to kill others and where the families of the deceased are now forced to use obituaries like that man in Alabama using the obituaries of their loved ones to try and save the lives of others. One family in Springfield, Illinois, is mourning a mother who lost her life to COVID, and they're using her obituary to send a strong and important message to people who refuse the vaccine. Candace Ayers, who died at 66 years of age on September 3, she had been, according to her family, actually fully vaccinated against the virus since the spring. Her family stresses in her obituary that she was, quote, infected by others who chose not to be vaccinated. 
The obituary, written by her husband, Terry, and two adult children, explains that Ayers was diagnosed with a breakthrough case of COVID in late July. In speaking to the local state journal register, her family shared that Ayers had rheumatoid arthritis, which likely put her at a higher risk for complications. In early September, her family came to the difficult decision to remove her from the ventilator after three weeks because of irreversible lung damage after all that time. Ayers died within minutes of being taken off the ventilator, according to the family. Her obit reads in part she was preceded in death by more than 4,531,799 others infected with COVID. She was vaccinated, they said, but was infected by others who chose not to be. The cost was her life. Ayers and her husband had actually both contracted the virus, but his symptoms, unlike hers, were mild. The family believes that Ayers caught the virus while visiting a family friend in, well, Mississippi Mm. in July. That friend's husband, sadly, also recently passed away due to COVID. Uh, Her uh, 36-year-old son, Mark, told the Journal Register, quote, this whole thing is so preventable. He added that people have politicized the vaccine. These are the people who have perpetuated the cycle of pain for our family and so many others. In speaking to CNN, Ayers said uh, he actually took his parents to get the second vaccine dose, and he stressed that they are a family that believes in science, that wears masks, they believe in vaccines. He pointed out that when in Mississippi they were in a state that had one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country, and that if others had gotten vaccinated and wore a mask, his mother might still be alive today. So what goes on in these red, low-vax states like Mississippi? Yes, it even hurts those, those of us, uh, in the so-called blue states, and in this case, in the so-called blue state of Illinois. And then there's this. From uh, one of the bluest states in the nation, actually, Hawaii, where we are heard, by the way, each day on 88.5 FM, KAKU, the voice of Maui. Hey, KAKU, voice of Maui. Which I would like to visit someday, very soon. Hint, hint, (laughs) KAKU listeners. Uh, Though only, not that soon, only after the pandemic, because I ain't getting on neither a plane or a boat to Hawaii anytime soon, I'm afraid. Uh, especially with this in mind. This comes from a community blogger uh, at Daily Coast today named Amadon. Uh, He or she writes, I can't tell, uh, writes, I am an 80-year-old retired physician living on the big island of Hawaii. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have prided ourselves on our ability to self-discipline, follow masking guidelines, and socially distance, which has been reflected in the lowest prevalence and mortality rates in the country. However, with the emergence of the Delta variant, we have seen rates skyrocket to the point that our epidemiologic uh, epidemiologic curves are approximating those now of Florida and other southern red states. Our hospitals are full and there are essentially no ICU beds available on the island. The vaccination rate is stagnating at around 60 percent and 98 percent of the hospitalized COVID patients are unvaccinated. Yesterday, 
Uh, Amadon writes, my neighbor, a 75-year-old retiree, developed symptoms of renal stones, and we took him to a local urologist. After evaluating him, the urologist determined that surgery would be necessary to remove the stone. However, we were informed that due to the COVID situation, there is no oxygen available for non-emergency surgeries anywhere on the islands. That's plural. On any of the islands. Thus, Amadin writes, uh, as my neighbor's condition is not life-threatening, even though it is, he is in considerable pain, the surgery has now been put off for at least two weeks until additional oxygen can be shipped in. This, warns the 80-year-old retired physician, is a reminder that even in the bluest of blue states, the anti-vaxxers are continuing to create a health crisis for us all. Well, thank you, anti-vaxxers, you FCC unallowable expletive here. Yeah, I know. Your body, your choice, right? Your freedom to do whatever you like, even if it kills you. Well, newsflash, it is not just killing you. You live in a society. Please act like it before there is no society at all left to live in. The Green News Report is next up on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. So uh, what is it now? One in 500? Yeah, that... something like one in 500 Americans have now died of COVID. Yeah. Well, one of these days, we will no longer have to cover COVID stories. And I, I ho- hope so. And, well, and I hope it's because COVID has been eradicated. Yes. <laughs> Not for any other reason that I'm unable to. But, you know, left-wing radio hosts get vaccines mm-hmm. and they're just fine. Yeah. <clears throat> That's what we hope. Anyway, okay. Uh, oh, we got to get to it. Yes. Our latest Green News Report. We do expect rounds of heavy rainfall to continue in an area that is frankly already fully saturated. Nicholas adds insult to injury in storm-battered Louisiana. Clean energy future is an economic imperative and a national security imperative and an environmental imperative. Biden continues pitch for clean energy solutions and urgent action on climate. States move to hold producers responsible for plastic pollution, plus... Those companies include Exxon, Shell, Sunoco, and Sitco. Vermont is the latest state to sue the fossil fuel industry for lying about global warming. All the truth behind those lies and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We know it's causing climate change, human activity. This is no longer subject to debate. And I might add, windmills do not cause cancer. Well, that's not what I heard, Mr. President. This is your Green News Report. I'm gonna soak up the sun. 
Okay, Dizzy Doyen, I'm afraid we're not anywhere near the end of storm season this year, and yet the storms continue to continue. Yes, they do. In Louisiana, Tropical Depression Nicholas is tossing a wrench into the recovery from Hurricane Ida, dumping relentless rain and spawning tornadoes in areas that suffered flooding and extreme damage from Ida just two weeks ago. Thousands of rooftops are currently covered only in flimsy tarps. Power is slowly being restored. Nicholas is the 14th named storm of the 2021 season and the eighth storm to make landfall in the U.S. this year. The record for landfalling storms is 11, set just last year, and we still have two and a half months to go in hurricane season. Oh, brother, is any of this getting through to these oil states like Louisiana and Texas. Well, President Biden warned about the costs and dangers of climate change in his remarks at the National Renewable Energy Lab in Colorado this week, pitching his Build Back Better agenda as a vital step toward fighting and adapting to climate change and calling his clean energy proposals, quote, an economic imperative and a national security imperative that are necessary to address costly and deadly impacts. You know, we have to invest in being more resilient because of the impacts of climate. We have to make the investments that are going to slow our contributions to climate change today, not tomorrow. And here's the good news. Something that is caused by humans can be solved by humans. We'll see. A key climate policy in Democrats' $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill passed out of one committee this week, the landmark Clean Electricity Performance Plan, which would pay utilities to accelerate the switch to clean energy. But it is facing powerful opposition from utility companies heavily invested in coal and from within the Democrats' own party. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of the coal state of West Virginia, chairman of the Senate's Environment Committee, is also trying to eliminate the program, despite its popularity in his own state. The Intercept reports that Manchin has himself profited millions every year from family investments in coal. Yeah, I thought you were going to say it's being opposed by utility companies heavily invested in Joe Manchin. Indeed. Meanwhile, a new study this week confirms previous research indicating that the vast majority of fossil fuel reserves owned today by countries and companies must remain in the ground to avoid the worst aspects of climate change. The researchers conclude that 90% of coal and 60% of oil and gas reserves must remain untapped for humanity to have even a 50% chance of capping global temperatures at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The researchers note that will require private companies and countries with nationalized oil industries to write down the value of their reserves. Did you hear that, Joe Manchin? More than 2,000 scientists and academics have called on the United Nations to adopt and implement a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty as the annual U.N. General Assembly gets underway in New York City, noting that, quote, fossil fuel impacts are global and require a global solution. The group calls for a legally binding plan for an equitable phase-out of all fossil fuel production, in keeping with the global scientific consensus to not exceed 1.5 
degrees of global warming. Several states are addressing plastic pollution. California passed a state law banning companies from putting the recycling symbol on items unless they can prove the material is actually recyclable. There's an idea. Maine and Oregon are adopting a strategy that makes plastic producers responsible for the waste that they produce instead of taxpayers by requiring producers to pay all or some of cities' recycling costs. Finally, Vermont is the latest state to sue major oil companies this week. Vermont's attorney general alleges the companies violated consumer protection laws, misleading the public in their ads and publications about the impact of their products on the climate, deceiving Vermonters since at least the 1960s. (laughs) I'll take it. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Lies, lies, I can't believe a word you say. Not when it comes to the fossil fuel companies, anyway. Certainly not. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends, your family, your neighbors, your... Uh, uh, voluntarily unvaxxed enemies. Feel free. <laughs> share it with them. Uh, what else? Uh, you can uh, oh, you, so you can download that for free at bradblog.com. And while you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com/donate or just hit any one of those donate buttons because you are the only ones who help us stay on your public airwaves and tell these stories um, to the whole world that I believe needs to hear them. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Is that it? That's it. That's it. Uh, we'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Lies, lies are gonna make you sad someday.